Earlier in the week, a train full of wounded stopped outside Accrington Station. A voice shouted to a group of women, Where are we? Accrington. Accrington. The Accrington Pals. They've been wiped out. Recollection of Miss Edith Ruffsedge from the book Accrington Pals by William Turner, July 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 21, Psalm Casualty Notices. I want to start by giving a shout out to our first patron on Patreon, listener David. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. I am deeply grateful. If you would like to join David and become a patron as well, please see the link provided in the episode description. It's patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Also, a heartfelt thanks for the recent reviews and one-time donations. Uh, again, I am deeply grateful. Donations go towards server base maintenance and the acquisition of new intel for future episodes. Your reviews help strengthen and deepen our trenches on iTunes. Reviews also help guide more podcast listeners through our lanes in the thick barbed wire fields into our lines where our numbers will grow. So thanks to all of you out there who have done your bit for the BFWWP. This episode, we are actually leaving the trenches in Picardy. We're going to take a brief and flyover type look at how the home fronts of the three main belligerents on the Somme, the French, the Germans, and the British, were weathering the terrible hurricane of blood and steel that was sweeping the world. The Battle of the Somme was an ongoing battle, the likes of which, with its twin, Verdun, were new to the world. The amount of materiel used on the battlefields in order to kill, maim, and dismember men by the thousands and tens of thousands was nearly incomprehensible to the human mind, those that were privy to what was going on. With the Somme, however, the knowledge of just how terrible this war really was, was becoming more and more public. Through July and August, the French army took some 70,000 casualties on the Somme front, and to their north, the British poured over 200,000 men into its campaign to grind down the German army. In their role as defenders with a lot of counterattacks, the German army had sustained losses of somewhere around 170,000 men. It's hard to know as they counted casualties differently. Keep in mind that for the French and the Germans, 
they had also been hemorrhaging hundreds of thousands of men at Verdun since late February. Thousands of men killed, wounded, taken prisoner, or missing. Back home, anxious and expectant families waited desperately for word of their sons, husbands, fathers, and brothers. How did the folks back home see the war? We're going to start with the French and Germans, as we have less information on them due to your podcaster's language limitations. We'll spend more time on the British as we have more available to draw from English language sources. France and the French had the clearest case for understanding the war and what it was about. Of course, it was much more complex and nuanced than will be presented here, but it was France that had been invaded and it was one-fifth of the nation that lay behind the stagnant front lines and under brutal German occupation. The French people were fighting the Bosch invader and were working to liberate the sacred soil of La Patrie. With the onset of 1916 and the Battle of Verdun, the heavy losses were met with a grim determination to continue to push forward. And the Germans would be driven out. This was changing, though. It was in the summer of 1916 that the French Parliament met in secret session to discuss General Joseph Joffre's conduct of the war thus far. The blood and treasure lost to the war up to this point was a body blow to the French people. A generation of men were already gone, and there had to be accountability despite the commitment of a union sacrée between political parties while the war was on. Papa Joffre had to be held accountable, a growing number of people believed. The near disaster at Verdun and the lack of stunning success at the Somme confirmed these beliefs. It was the beginning of his eventual downfall later that year. For Germany, Things were getting desperate and darker. With specific relation to the Somme, July and August were bad news overall for the Germans. So the military and the press changed the goalposts on what success meant. It now meant that defending the bricks of a ruined village like Longueval or Guillemont were successes. Not losing was seen as a win. With this shifted message of what winning now meant, there was also the intertwined theme that the dogged Somkampfer, part of the quote, living wall, end quote, that was defending the fatherland, were bravely sacrificing for Germany and the German people. Things in Germany were getting darker. By the spring of 1916, the naval blockade of Germany and the war effort was leading towards an ever larger food crisis. More and more rationing was becoming the order of the day for the working classes. Real hunger was being felt amongst the workers, the young and the elderly. 
This was pointing the Imperial German Reich down an ever darker road. The social fabric was starting to tear. Across the country, young men committed acts of violence in waves that had never before been seen. With their fathers and older brothers away at the front, and mom probably working her tail off at the factory, there was no one around to set an example of appropriate behavior. Between social classes, there was increasing resentment and tension between the upper classes, who appeared to be weathering the war's ravages of food stocks well enough, and the working class, who were in the beginning stages of starvation. The general public was becoming more and more tired of the war day after day, and this feeling manifested itself with increasing instances of political violence. The increased food rationing led to an increasing disconnect between the Frontschwein in the trenches and their families back home. A wife back home, no doubt, worried and ached for her husband's well-being, but she likely had little or no idea what her husband was actually going through. What she did know immediately was that she and her children were always hungry and everyday shortages were getting worse. She was losing connection with her beloved because here at home, the problem of what would be her children's next meal was again immediate and alarming. Many German soldiers resented this growing disconnect. They were starting to feel it and they hated it. Themes of violence towards anyone back home who wasn't solidly supporting the war effort can be seen in communications sent back home. Already, the blaming of Jews and the ideas of Jews back home profiting off the war and the suffering German people were making stronger rounds amongst the men who were sacrificing all for their country. Quick aside, German Jews fought alongside their Christian countrymen during the war. At the Consenvoie German Military Cemetery, north of Verdun, I saw plenty of German Jewish grave markers amongst the crosses. In a way, what was to be expected of men kept in a horrific environment for months and years on end, frequently with the only hope of relief an enemy's bullet. The German soldier, for years, presented with life and death problems that were answered with shocking and dehumanizing violence, was now looking to solving problems at home the same way. The months and years away were also steadily severing their own ties with the people back home. With Germany and the Germans, things were not looking well. That now brings us to the British people and their war experience thus far in the spring and summer of 1916. At this time, Britain and its people were feeling strongly about the Great War, despite its happening somewhere else. Everyone knew someone serving overseas and across the Channel. Folks back in the UK were deeply sympathetic to the plight of Belgium 
and Belgian refugees, and also to the plight of the French people as well. They wanted to know that their country was doing their bit to defeat Kaiser Bill and his Huns. And with the Somme, that was finally at hand. There was also a shared common identity of the British people as united in an empire and with a strong position in world affairs. Britain should be leading the offensive on the Western Front. These sentiments were carefully managed by the British Army. World War I was the first big media war. And with the then rapid dissemination of information and ability to add photographs and now even motion pictures to accompany and support news from the war. Folks back home always wanted to know more about the troops and how they were getting on in the field. The troops themselves loved the news too, in particular the Times and the Daily Mail. All of this had to be managed by the army to ensure that everyone stayed on message, that of supporting the war effort. General Sir Douglas Haig himself rather hated reporters, but he knew grudgingly that in this new day and age, they would have to be involved in the war effort. For the most part, British reporters were patriotic and supportive, and they operated with three broad themes in mind. To report positive and supportive news on the war and war effort. To illustrate very clearly and loudly to their allies, the French, about how the Brits were stepping up and putting in equal effort in fighting the enemy, and to always show how Germany was suffering. Even with the occasional persona non grata, like Reppington, popping up, things between the army and the media were broadly on the same page. Reporters got access to good news. They reported good news and the people back home continued believing in the war. But the Battle of the Somme began the breakdown of those high spirits. With the staggering losses of 20,000 killed on the 1st of July 1916 and nearly another 40,000 wounded, there was just no avoiding such a devastating shock. At first, the news from the big push at the Somme was of success and good progress in pushing the enemy back. Initial reports filtered back to Accrington, a town near Manchester, reported that the village of Serre, north of the Somme, had been taken by the local boys serving in the 11th Service Battalion of the East Lancashire Regiment, better known as the Accrington Pals. This wasn't so much Pollyanna propaganda as it was fog of war, most likely. In those first days, the news from the front was jumbled and confused. A week and a half into the Battle of the Somme, and the story began to change. Across Great Britain, letters from loved ones at the front had stopped during the first week of July. Then there was a short period of no news, ratcheting the anxiety and desperation of wives, mothers, sisters, and daughters 
all across the realm even further. Then came the official notices. At first, listing men as missing. Then came unofficial notices. Letters from wounded men explaining their situation and that of others. But then came British Army Form B-104-82, the most dreaded piece of government paperwork any citizen back home could receive. This form stated, quote, Sir slash madam, it is my painful duty to inform you that a report has this day been received from the War Office notifying the death of number 12345 rank private name Thomas Atkins Regiment East Lancashire Regiment which occurred at Serre, France on the 1st of July 1916 and I am to express to you the sympathy and regret of the Army Council at your loss. The cause of death was killed in action. If any articles of private property left by the deceased are found, they will be forwarded to this office. But some time will probably elapse before their receipt, and when received, they cannot be disposed of until authority is received from the War Office. Application regarding the disposal of any such personal effects or of any amount that may eventually be found to be due to the late soldier's estate should be addressed to the Secretary, War Office, London, and marked outside effects. I am, sir, slash madam, your obedient servant. Signed, the local army council official. End quote. Towns all across the UK began receiving these notices. This wasn't new. The war had been on for two years, and the cost had already been heavy. But now we see the effect of the PALS battalions. Because of the nature of Lord Kitchener's new army units, locally raised based on hometowns, entire communities were being hit with these notices all at once. Sometimes the notices came to one neighborhood when a particular company or battalion was hit hard in the field. In Wales, notices arrived in the St. Thomas district of Swansea after 75 men of the 14th Welsh Battalion had been killed at Mamet's Wood. So much death in such a localized manner was devastating to these small and closely knit communities where everybody knew everybody. Public morale was bowled over with grief. In Accrington, solid news of men's fates began arriving between the 8th and the 15th of July. The local newspapers did their best to put a positive shine on the events of the 1st of July, but the names of the killed and wounded were accompanied by photographs and biographies the newspapers themselves had requested of next of kin. These pages with the casualty lists were then posted in neighborhood shops, and the people of Accrington were hit hard as they saw the faces of men they knew well, or perhaps just as acquaintances, now confirmed to be killed in action or missing. Using 
the common name Thomas Atkins we used for the casualty notice from earlier. The publication of his name along with the picture could elicit a gasp from a young woman walking by who recognized the boy who'd once asked her to dance or someone else who might look and say, my God, that's so-and-so's son. You know, so-and-so at the end of the street. This went on over the breadth of the United Kingdom during the summer and on into the autumn of 1916. Official word sometimes also arrived with returned mail that folks back home had sent to their loved ones in France. On the envelope would be a handwritten note, quote, killed in action, end quote, along with the date the letter was returned. It was an unimaginable fate with no recent precedent to have to come to terms so suddenly with so many military deaths. Newfoundland first received news of wounded members of its 1st Newfoundland Regiment on the 6th of July, and the community was told that these were mostly lightly wounded men who would be back in action in no time. But the notices of 300 out of 800 men killed all in one day, episode 8, Fricor to Gomcor has the story, belied that cheery spin. It was a crushing blow to an island community of just 250,000 people. And as Professor William Philpott stated in his book, Bloody Victory, quote, the community's sacrifice had to be absorbed and justified, end quote. Local newspapers had already been laying the groundwork for justification in anticipation of dreadful news from the Western Front. One paper wrote, quote, It will be a glorious role of honor, which will be the lasting pride of our land. The years will add to its luster while they soften and remove its tragic pathos. End quote. Newfoundland publicly chose to honor its men by renewing its collective commitment to the Allied cause of liberty and justice a month later in August 1916. As the Somme dragged on through August and on into September, the notices kept flowing home to every corner of the British Empire. Winston Churchill noted the change in the British people towards a, quote, somber mood. The faculty of wonder has been dulled. Emotion and enthusiasm have given place to endurance. Excitement is bankrupt. Death is familiar and sorrow numb, end quote. Perhaps worst of all, were the notices of men missing in action that went on for months without any resolution. At first, some of the men might turn up as wounded, and perhaps they might even write home. Alternately, and more dreadfully, 
a friend or fellow unit member might communicate to the family that their loved one was not missing, but had been killed. A German poem, Wer wird es wohl sein, expressed the sentiment of many of these families. The translated version will be read here. Who can it be? There on the wood's edge, a lonely wooden cross that bears no name. Who can it be? Somewhere along the Rhine, back home in Germany, a mother weeps silently. Where can he be? Some men had just disappeared in the maelstrom and the confusion of an attack or its aftermath. They may have simply been blown to pieces with no witnesses nearby. And as the status of these men went unanswered and unresolved for weeks, then months, then years, they left gaping wounds in their families' hearts. Years later, many would be listed as presumed dead, but the lack of a body left little closure. The psalm, however, despite its horrific nature and its dreadful losses, was nowhere near done. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the website firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you once again for the recent donations and reviews. If you'd like to give a one-time donation to help support the podcast, please head over to firstworldwarpodcast.com and click on the PayPal button there. If you'd like to become a patron and give a recurring donation for the show, please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. If neither of these options is a possibility right now, but you'd still like to help the show, no worries. Consider leaving a review on iTunes as reviews are extremely helpful as well. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Talk to you again soon. Take care.